Hello, and welcome to another episode of Headlight in the Fog, the UVitis podcast. We're your hosts, Akshay Thomas and Laura Kaplin. Uh, hi, everyone. Today, we are once again joined by Drs. Jennifer Lee and Dr. John Gonzalez. Dr. Lee is a UVitis specialist in Northern California. Jennifer, thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much for inviting me back. And Dr. Gonzalez is associate professor at the Francis I. Proctor Foundation at the University of California in San Francisco. John, thanks for coming back. Thanks very much. Happy to be back. Well, we're glad everyone's able to join us for part two of our two-part episodes on the uveitic testing in adults for, for causes of their uveitis. In our first episode, we focused on anterior, intermediate, posterior, and pan-uveitis. And here in this part two, we're going to be focusing on a little bit more esoteric ocular inflammatory conditions, neuroretinitis, scleritis, occlusive retinal vasculitis, and then just briefly to honor our, our mentor, uh, Jim Rosenbaum, orbital inflammatory disease. So starting off with neuroretinitis, I'll preface it by many of us perhaps treat these patients in combination with neuroophthalmology, um, but let's say someone comes in with some degree of inflammation in their anterior chamber vitreous cavity and they have inflammation of their nerve with macular star formation. What sort of things are you testing for, John? Yeah, I mean, so you know, certainly if, if you have somebody that has, I'm not a huge fan of the term neuroretinitis. Um, just because often these patients don't have necessarily a frank retinitis. But if we think about um, the, the kind of underlying process, which is like disc edema and maybe a macular scar, uh, certainly one of the things that you might consider is classic neuro cause of neuroretinitis is Martinella-Hensler, right? Cat scratch disease. And, and that can present with intraocular inflammation. That can present with a granulomatous anterior chamber cell. That can present with a retinochoroidal lesion. And so, you know, certainly in those cases, you would order uh, tests directed against Martinella-Hensler. But there are other causes of disc edema with the macular star, including, you know, we have, we've talked earlier about tuberculosis and syphilis. I think we, you know, those need to be ruled out. Sarcoidosis can also kind of sometimes have a similar feature. We talked about uh, Lyme disease. So again, if, if somebody's history fit with Lyme disease, you might, might think about that. But then also important to rule out other causes. Maybe there is no inflammation. You want to make sure that they don't have any malignant hypertension or that there's not pseudotumor cerebri with a macular star. Yeah, all, all great points. Jennifer, anything additional that you might consider testing for someone with optic nerve swelling with the macular star? No, I, I thought John's answer was fantastic. I think that this is where sometimes your systemic review systems comes into play too. I think some of those rare like more tick-borne diseases can sometimes be a cause of, of neuroretinitis too. So like the Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So I think sometimes any sort yeah. of preceding viral prodrome and, and location and life activities that your patient engages in are, are probably good things to, to keep on your differential. Mm -hmm. I was just going to mention it. Sometimes these patients with neuroretinitis or discodemia and macular star present with minimal or sometimes no inflammation. And so I do like to identify if the issue is a primary optic neuropathy. And so certainly there are inflammatory optic neuropathies that have essentially no uveitis or the uveitis is quite minimal, or they have macular edema because the disc edema is so diffuse that it, it, it essentially kind of seeps into the macula. But in patients who have an optic neuropathy, you know, it's important to collaborate with any, uh, someone in neuro-ophthalmology or neurology to make sure that you're not overlooking diseases that can affect the, the optic nerve primarily. I think those are all such important points. I think there's definitely this knee-jerk reaction, and I completely agree with what John said. You can have 
there's so much nerve swelling that it kind of seeps into your macula, kind of creating that exact similar appearance we get in neuroretinitis. So the same type of things you might consider getting in someone with just bilateral nerve swelling from neuroimaging or just getting them neuroophthalmology is extremely important. I'd say that like a neuroretinitis is probably one of the few situations in which I check for, like you guys said, Bartonella, Lyme, and Rocky Mountain spotted fever, assuming there are risk factors, but there's an argument to be made that a lot of patients may not know if they had a tick bite, right? So, so right. those are one of the few situations in which I will check for those regardless of, of symptoms before getting them off to neuroophthalmology. I do think it's important though to at least consider some of these things. I recently had a patient that, that was a primary, was a neuroretinitis patient and she had walked out a lot of these elevated intracranial hypertension workup type of situations, had a lot of testing and, and somehow everyone had overlooked getting a Bartonella Hensley a test and, and that was clearly it. Outdoor cat exposure, cat scratches sky high Bartonella titers. And interestingly enough, had actually not responded, you know, with how the natural clinic course I, I would have thought with that would have been, which oftentimes can be fairly self-limited. And as soon as she was placed on appropriate doxycycline therapy, almost immediate improvement in vision, nerve findings. And so like, sometimes you can be the the hero and maybe could have, I feel like if the patient would have just maybe seen one of us first instead of maybe the ED a couple of times. She could have been saved a lot of these other procedures and, and testing if, if someone with a little bit of know-how so would have just stepped in there and, and said, wait, we need to be checking for Bartonella. So even if even if this isn't something you maybe are going to be the one managing longitudinally, you know, you can possibly save the patient from from some other testing if, if you happen to find the answer early. Definitely. I forgot to mention one other type of neuroretinitis, which is the Duzen diffuse subacute neuroretinitis, diffuse unilateral subacute neuroretinitis, you know, which is typically helminth infection. And so that can present kind of as a sometimes some discodeme, at least very early on before the, the disc actually peters out and becomes entirely pallid, uh, pigmentary changes in the, in the fundus. Yeah. Right. And, and just two other little comments. One, another thing that we think about with neuroretinitis would be Irvam, so idiopathic vasculitis and neuroretinitis, which again, not a exceedingly uncommon, but something to kind of keep in your differential. The other thing I'd say is I have patients oftentimes refer to me for disc swelling and they've had neuroimaging, but I think it's important to remember that all forms of uveitis, especially in younger patients, they have a robust anterior chamber reaction. They can develop like a little bit of a papillitis and disc swelling. So so it's not not terribly uncommon for us to see that. I'd say in our world, it becomes more suspicious, more curious if they're otherwise pretty quiet and they've got swelling and macular star formation. That's almost when we're testing for a lot of things we just described. I mean, that's a little bit atypical for the typical uveitis patient. All right. So moving on to scleritis. So Jennifer, in our last episode, we kind of poo-pooed testing for things like ANAs and stuff like that for the average uveitis patient. So what about for scleritis? So what sort of stuff are we thinking about and what do we test for in scleritis? So top of my differential autoimmune conditions include rheumatoid arthritis, granulomatosis with polyangitis, microscopic polyangitis, lupus, IgG4 disease, sarcoidosis. For infectious things, I think about TB, syphilis, herpes. So I'll screen these patients with rheumatoid factor, anti-CCP, ANA, INCA, looking at MPO, PR3. I'll get IgG4 levels. Quant gold, syphilis antibodies, ACE, lysine, chest X-ray. For herpes patients, it's a tougher diagnosis. 
I look for any concomitant keratitis. I'll check corneal sensation to help establish a diagnosis. How about you, John? Anything else you'd add to that list? It's a pretty good, pretty good one. Yeah, I know that that's a great list. I would certainly add, or you know, which we're often already doing a chest X-ray uh, because you can certainly see, or, or CT chest, you can certainly see cavitary lesions in GPA-associated scleritis. I would also consider adding a B1 and creatinine as well as a urinalysis with microscopy because sometimes you can actually have ANCA negative GPA, but you can see other features elsewhere in the body, for example, the kidney. So you can find features of renal dysfunction or casts in the urine, which would be helpful. So that's another thing. And I really like that Jennifer had mentioned that herpetic eye disease can also have scleritis. And so certainly that's the case for zoster. So getting a good history, maybe they had HCL on that side and now they have scleritis as a sequela. And in some of those cases, actually, I've had to, despite using antivirals, still had to use uh, courses of oral steroids to manage the scleritis in those cases. And I agree. I think scleritis, it really is important to do some of that screening for other end organ damage. I I like to screen for renal dysfunction as well in in scleritis patients. I think I'd also throw in there that I usually do some hepatitis testing in, in the scleritis patient population. And occasionally, depending on review systems, uric acid, looking for gout, Especially if they mm-hmm. give you that gout history, you know, with the painful swollen red toe. Actually, anything you'd you'd add in there? No, I think I think this is an extremely thorough list, and and I think again, it just is worth reiterating that these are the situations where you're checking rheumatoids and ANA and ANCA, and um, certainly, certainly, I think the hardest thing for me with scleritis is distinguishing infectious from non-infectious. I think it's obviously if you have mm-hmm. someone with a history of rheumatoid arthritis and stuff, you know, you think you, that you kind of have a slam dunk. But there's always, we I think we've all had a scleritis patient that just is not responding the way you'd expect um, a scleritis mm-hmm. patient to respond to high-dose oral steroids. And then you're just in a little bit of a quandary because a lot of the diagnostic testing we do, we're end up going to potentially biopsy very friable, very thin tissue with, I'd say, arguably very, very low diagnostic yield. So it's the type of stuff that can progress quickly and, and can be blinding. So I'd say distinguishing infectious versus non-infectious early on or as early as possible is, is critical in these patients. Yeah. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention, so relapsing polychondritis is, is a clinical diagnosis. So that's that's one that is associated with scleritis, but there really isn't a test for per se. And so that's one mm-hmm. that, again, you need to be doing your review systems to, to screen for the cartilage inflammation. And then inflammatory bowel disease is, I think, sometimes a little bit of an underrecognized cause for scleritis as well. And, and so that's something, again, you're probably going to be making mostly up on review of systems, but that's another one where sometimes I will be getting some fecal calprotectin screening. You have to be a little cautious with that in that sometimes scleritis patients already come to you on NSAID therapy, which apparently can cause mild elevations in fecal calprotectin testing. And so sometimes you'll need to recheck that later down the road after they're off the NSAIDs for a while. I've seen cases of B27, patients with a history of B27 anterior uveitis also develop scleritis as one of their flares later on. Yeah, I think that's an important, that's an important consideration. That's a good one, Jennifer. So John, I kind of, again, like I said, I kind of poo-pooed taught, doing checking like ANAs and stuff in patients with anterior uveitis. But one thing that we see very commonly is patients with scleritis can get robust anterior chamber reactions sometimes, right? So, you know, right. I think I think the it just kind of factors into you know making sure you're lifting those lids and seeing if there's like a sectoral scleritis <laughs> kind of hiding hiding oh, yeah. somewhere to kind of guide your testing. I, I don't know if there's are there specific oh. things that make you think of infectious versus non-infectious scleritis? Yeah, I mean infectious scleritis certainly like a history of prior surgery might be compatible with that. So 
I've had patients that have had had a prior post-operative endophthalmitis from cataract surgery, had intravitreal taps and injects, and ultimately, I think were those intravitreal injections that ultimately were associated with scleritis in that region. And it took at least a year, probably years, where the patient had been put on multiple immunosuppressive agents because there had been a scleral biopsy done. It was negative. Years later, when uh, some turbid fluid developed in that region and that was, was sampled, it was positive for mycobacterium, a slow-growing mycobacterium, uh, not, not uh, atypical mycobacteria. And so you have to be on the lookout. You have to think about some of these atypical mycobacteria, which take longer to culture, to cultivate. And um, yeah, so you know, prior surgeries, prior procedures, and again, uh, maybe there may be some kind of purulent material perhaps in that region, but hardware. Ahmed's prior retinal buckles that were made of the sponge in particular, I don't think those are really utilized anymore, but we've had you know decades after a typical mycobacterium that had been harbored and were the cause, the primary site of, of an infectious scleritis. Yeah. Jennifer, you mentioned something that I'm sure a lot of listeners haven't tested for, which is IgG4 levels. Mm-hmm. So briefly, briefly, what are you, what are you looking for um, checking IgG4 levels? I'm looking for elevated titers. These are sort of plasmacyte infiltrates into tissues, including the sclera, but elsewhere in the body. So, and, and they can present as a granulomatous anterior uveitis, but also a, a scleritis, orbital inflammation as well. And it's important to note too that the levels within the bloodstream, if elevated, are helpful. But if you're suspicious for IgG4 disease, we'll talk about this a little bit more in the orbital when we get the orbital here can be normal in the bloodstream, but mm-hmm. elevated within the local tissue. And so it's, it's sometimes a tricky diagnosis to make, but probably important mm-hmm. that we, you know, would then be directed more towards maybe an antibody or an anti-antibody, anti-antibody therapy, mm-hmm. um, potentially over maybe some of more of our right. TNF type, anti-TNF type of therapeutics. So something to keep, keep right. in our mind for scleritis, and we'll touch again on this at, at IgG or in the orbital section here in just a minute. Yeah, I mean, one thing I wanted to add is that scleritis is one of the conditions where I'm firmly opposed to starting with a local steroid just for the, just as an like a, a, a subconjure subtenons tenolog, even though it can be very, very effective, especially if someone has a sectoral scleritis. But yeah. for the very reason that we've discussed, because sometimes, you know, if it's something infectious and you've injected some steroid under there, I mean, that can go south very, very quickly. So along with retinitis, I'd say scleritis is another situation in which I'm almost always starting with oral steroids or some oral form of medication or topical before I would consider any sort of like local steroid injections. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone disagrees disagrees with that approach. Yeah, I'm I much the same, that. actually. I'm, I'm much the same. It's, it's that and retinitis are things that I think you have to be really comfortable, really confident it's not infectious before you go down that pathway. Also, I think I, I like to know yeah. too that they're not maybe... A scleritis is going to be prone to melting before I go mm-hmm. down that pathway too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, moving on to all of our absolute favorite thing to manage, which is <laughs> occlusive retinal vasculitis. Um, so, so, so Jennifer, we know the, the differential for occlusive retinal vasculitis is, is, is just huge. What are some ways that you kind of, I guess, when you look at it, what are, what are some things you're looking for which kind of help you decide which, what to start looking for in terms of diagnostic testing? For example, like is it arteries, veins, what sort of stuff are you looking at? Yeah, I, I look at if there's localized retinitis. I look at arterial involvement, what it's mostly a venular process and 
So if it's more of an arteritis, if I see arterial occlusion, and also if there's a localized retinitis, I think about infectious things, HSV1, HSV2, BZB, CMV, syphilis, toxo, TB as well. And then also things that can affect, things that can cause an arteriolitis include um, lupus, uh, SUSAC, Bichette's, but although I believe Bichette's can do both. It can involve the um, arterioles and the venules. And TB can also mm-hmm. do both. Great. I mean, so with that being said, we've kind of talked about a lot of different diagnostic tests. Are there anything additional that we haven't mentioned elsewhere that we can actually you know, check for in these patients with an occlusive retinal vasculitis? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, depending on if they're neurologic you know, symptoms, you can certainly do an MRI. Um, you might consider uh, MRI, MRA, you know, if you're concerned about uh, Bichette's involvement or neurobichette's. And I, I like to get a fluorescein angiogram as well. Just you, you, you may see clinical features, you know, hemorrhagic vasculitis or areas of sheathing, but the fluorescein I think is helpful in kind of identifying just maybe how uh, extensive the, the process is. Uh, I, I find that especially helpful in CMV retinitis. It's interesting because I, I don't know if this is the case for, for the three of you, but I don't see CMV retinitis nowadays in the setting of in the context of HIV, it's often patients who are immunosenescent. They, they're older and they have maybe, like maybe they have one extra disease, like they're diabetic, but it's actually reasonably well controlled. And these patients, interestingly, can have a significant vasculopathy related to CMV. And it may take a little bit of time for a retinitis to develop. Um, but the fluorescein is helpful because clinically, you may not really appreciate just how diffuse and extensive the, the vasculopathy is with CMV. Also, in patients with uh, Bichette's, I find that to be really, really helpful because sometimes clinically, you don't really recognize how extensive and profound the, the vasculopathy is. Yeah, I completely agree. It can be very deceiving. The eye can look pretty quiet when there's a lot of vasculitis going on. I think one thing you bring up with that MRI imaging, John, and that MRA is, is making sure you're letting your radiology colleagues know what you're looking for. Because oftentimes these might be very small microvascular types of changes. And, and, you know, if they're a little bit older, they're going to read the sodas, white matter lesions, chronic micro, mm. you know, <laughs> microvascular ischemic changes appropriate for age or consistent with age. Whereas, are you kind of asking a very specific question? You know, we have this occlusive process within the eye. Is there anything in the brain that would fit with that? I think sometimes with the SUSAC, they don't always take those corpus callosal slices that are sometimes the pathognomonic kind of diagnostic feature unless you're asking them to look for that. And so I think it is helpful sometimes to say, okay, well, these are some of the things on the differential or any neurologic features that would fit with that as opposed to just, ah, uh, they're 50, they've got a few changes in the brain. It's probably nothing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think kind of the point of having a section on occlusive retinal vasculitis is that it's just such a large differential. I think a lot of things can be overlooked. I'd say that there's definitely situations in which we have patients just referred for branch retinal artery occlusions. And like John said, until you do an angiogram, you don't really even realize that it's inflammatory. Obviously, the patient demographic is a huge clue, you know, a young patient with no other Mm -hmm. risk factors. And if you see something like that and you're thinking SUSAC, like we mentioned, checking an MRI and perhaps audiometry. And then like Jennifer said, someone with multifocal, maybe BRVOs might have Bichette's disease. So kind of doing the review systems for that. Does anyone check like an HLA B51 for Bichette's? Laura, do you check that? I don't routinely. I've had a couple of patients where we've kind of done it mostly because of patients on the internet kind of thing. Um, 
what or one one page that was very interesting his like sibling had done like a ancestry.com type of thing or whatever and had said hey actually i think i was Turkish ancestry and so so we didn't kind of check it more for curiosity sake but since it's not part of the clinical diagnosis i i typically don't unless you know we're kind of just interested based on the patient's level of, of interest right yeah I'm, I'm similar i'm similar to that i i, I don't check it unless the, the patient is is very very much requesting that we test which happens not frequently one thing i have been checking for a little bit more which i didn't check for before i've had a handful of patients that presented with a quite dramatic just like perivenular sheathing and i've kind of just treated them for their their retinal vasculitis which may not be much in terms of treatment, but later on they develop Burchard lesions. Um, so there's there's definitely some patients in whom, or maybe I'm a little bit qu- quicker to pull on HLA A29 testing. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that, as we all know, certain percentage of the population are going to be positive for it. But I feel like it may be for someone that I'm on defense whether they might need I mean, immunosuppressive therapy if they hit if they're H1 positive, and I suspect they're heading in that direction. They may be a little bit quicker to pull a gun. John, I don't know if I'm just being crazy to do that or not. I was going to agree with you. I think uh, Bichette's is a clinical diagnosis and you just need oral ulcers, general ulcers, or the pathology test we don't do anymore Mm -hmm. to make the diagnosis of Bichette's with the typical uveitis. Whereas A29, there's a really strong genetic association with birdshot, Mm -hmm. so much so that if you are A29 negative and you have the typical birdshot lesion, it does call into question whether or not it's truly birdshot. Whereas B51, low positive predictive value, meaning there's tons of carriers. So I, I don't do um, B51 testing. Yeah. Now, John, Jennifer gave us a great list of some of the more occlusive arteriolar vasculitides. Anything that comes to your mind more when you see more of a venular associate process? I guess we can say occlusive or not, but more of a venular yeah. vasculitide. You can certainly see it. Yeah, you can certainly see a periphlebitis, for example, in sarcoidosis. So if I see that or segmental periphlebitis, you know, that that certainly is something that's potentially compatible with sarcoidosis. I mean, again, the things that we we are we're talking about really specific etiologies, and sometimes it's not possible to make a precise diagnosis or to give somebody a particular stamp. You can have, you know, toxoplasmosis. I mean, obviously you're looking for toxo lesions, but certainly you can have phlebitis in, in that particular uh, condition. And I've certainly you know, occasionally been referred patients who have sheathing, um, perivascular hemorrhages, maybe some exudates, and maybe not really any significant vitritis or AC cell or maybe nothing at all. But for those patients, you have, I guess we have to be aware of leukemic retinopathy, for example, and then kind of associated with leukemias or other uh, blood uh, disorders is, you know, just having this profound anemia because you can also have like an anemic thrombocytopenic retinopathy. And again, those can mimic features of a hemorrhagic vasculopathy, but aren't inflammatory in nature. Right? And so, you know, this is where in those particular instances, you know, getting a CBC actually could be enlightening in terms of what the actual disease process is going on. Yeah, I feel like my threshold for just getting a CBC and some sort of liver and renal function testing has lowered the longer I've been in clinical practice because sometimes there's useful information mm-hmm. on there that you weren't even expecting to find. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'll also say in, in my world, the other two things that I at least ask about or, or I've seen maybe a, few, a handful of times would be HORV, so hemorrhagic occlusive retinal vasculitis in the setting of uh, intracameral or intravitreal Vank. Um, I, I usually mm-hmm. fall in cataract surgery, but I don't. I think since that 
I came out, I think the Academy and others have done a really good job of, yeah. you know, kind of teaching us not to do that. Um, so I feel like I'm seeing that less, although I, I feel like I still see it sometimes after endophthalmitis, yeah. after we've injected bank, but then it's like, well, was that just from the endophthalmitis or was it from the intravitreal bank? You, you, you never know. Right. And then the other one would be intravitreal brolocizumab, which mm-hmm. some continue to use for wet AMD and it's just gotten also um, approved for treatment of diabetic macular edema um, and has been associated with occlusive and non-occlusive retinal vasculitis. So just something to be aware of, especially if you're not someone that uses those agents. It can also be another cause of uh, an occlusive retinal vasculitis. Well, let's finish off by moving outside of the eye and talk just a little bit about orbital inflammatory disease. I think not all of us see this that, that routinely. I used to treat it much more commonly at my last practice. Now I've, I've thankfully been able to avoid treating this as much as possible. But occasionally you will have patients coming in with uveitis that'll have a history of diplopia, or they'll tell you there's some lid swelling, or, or there'll be features of orbital orbital signs and, and symptoms that, that you do want to consider in your differential then maybe a bit differently. Um, so John, what, what comes to your mind if someone's coming in more with an orbital inflammatory process that, that you may think to test that either we've talked about or maybe haven't talked about yet? Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, certainly I'll think of granulomatosis with polyangiitis. So GPA is, is one thing that comes to, to mind. IgG4 related disease is something else. You can have sarcoid involvement with uh, within the orbit as well. So it's important to kind of listen to the patient. You may not frankly notice whether or not they have hypertrophy or something like that. But if they're mentioning that they've got some new diplopia, you might start to wonder what's going on in the orbit. In some of these cases, interestingly, we should always... Uh, I think we're all doing a thorough exam. Sometimes you can find additional clues looking at the conjunctiva and the tarsal conjunctiva. We can see, as Jennifer earlier noted, or in the past episode, you can see granulomas associated with sarcoid. We can also um, even see a cicatrizing conjunctivitis in sarcoid and in GPA. And so kind of identifying those features can be helpful and giving us a clue as to what's going on within within the orbit. Um, so if you're seeing granulomas on conjunctival biopsy in an area of cicatrization, that could give you an important clue as to what's happening in the orbit. Often in these cases um, where there is orbital involvement or classifying somebody as kind of non-specific, non-specific orbital inflammation, it may be helpful to get a biopsy because we may find evidence of IgG4-related disease, for example. And Laura, you were mentioning earlier that um, sometimes serum testing for IgG4 may be well within normal limits, but you you might actually find IgG4 staining from the biopsy and that will help kind of dictate therapy. There's specific therapies like the Tuximab that may be better suited for that disease. Jennifer, anything else you're testing for in a patient with suspected orbital inflammation? My workup is almost identical in evaluation for a patient with scleritis and orbital inflammation. The only thing I add is imaging, getting an MRI, um, looking at the extent of orbital inflammation, and I would guess I would just counsel, we don't want to forget about thyroid eye disease. So I think we get into mm-hmm. the esoteric autoimmune dis- diagnosis because that's what we do. But at the heart of things, as Jim would always remind us, you know, thyroid is the most common cause of orbital infl- inflammation. Mm-hmm. And so we need to, I, I, I do similar, Jennifer, I, I have pretty similar testing as scleritis as, as orbital inflammation, but I do also make sure I've got my, my thyroid tests, tests in there as well. Mm-hmm. And I have a very low threshold to send orbital inflammation for a biopsy. It's usually fairly easy to access tissue. It's a relatively safe procedure as long as they don't have a lot of other comorbidities or, or a lot of blood thinner use. And oftentimes mm-hmm. it can give us, you know, tissue can give us an answer that, you know, we can't get out of the retina. And so I think that's actually oftentimes right. the issue is just go get some tissue and see what's going on there. 
Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with neuroimaging. I mean, again, things like carotacavernous fistulas, right, can can look like oral mm-hmm. inflammation with proptosis, and obviously infections, right? So, um, and horrible cellulitis. I mean, uh, presumably the sort of the features of onset for that might be markedly different, but I'm usually getting a nod of approval from our oculoplastics colleagues before I <laughs> go ahead and say that I'm going to treat this as uh, purely non-infectious and uh, inflammatory. And I agree with the, I'm getting a, a, a biopsy when, when feasible. And I think masquerade is something we need to remember too, right? A lot of lymphoproliferative conditions can cause Mm-hmm. Orbital, orbital, chronic. You know, it'll kind of look like almost a chronic orbital inflammatory process, but it'll actually be lymphoproliferative, and that's you know, that's something we want to yeah. know when we're starting on our treatment paths because it, it's sort of like that masquerade yeah. where you get that partial response, but it never fully goes away, and and so that's something that yeah. that you know mm-hmm. you don't want to miss as well. Right. Exactly. Well, I want to once again thank John and Jennifer for joining us for this episode on etiologic testing in adults with uveitis part two. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And we hope that we'll have the audience back for our next episode of Headlight in the Fog. Take care and stay safe.